Listener supported. WNYC Studios. WQXR. In conversation. When New York's lockdown took hold in March, pianist Simona Dinnerstein found herself unable to sit down at her piano and play. Instead, she turned to reading and taking long walks in Greenwood Cemetery with her family, not far from their Brooklyn home. In June, her longtime producer Adam Abe's house finally convinced her to come back to the piano. And so, like many of us, she worked from home, recording music by Philip Glass and Schubert late into the night. The product of those sessions is the album A Character of Quiet, named for a passage in Wordsworth's poem The Prelude, which she read during her time away from the piano. I'm Zev Kane, and you're listening to WQXR, Classical New York in Conversation with pianist Simona Dinnerstein. I'm wondering if uh, we can go back to March, right, as the lockdown was was beginning to take hold and, and New York was all of a sudden in the middle of this unthinkable public health crisis. You wrote in the notes to your new album that lockdown didn't make you feel creative and productive. It made you feel anxious and enervated. And for two months, you barely touched the piano. What got you back to the piano? Well, I think what got me back was talking to my producer, Adam Abe's house, who's become a friend of mine over the years. He's done all of my albums and and we were talking um, and I was telling him about how I was feeling and, and how I just couldn't play. And he said, you know, you should record and I could come to your house. You've always wanted to record on your piano and we can make it work. And uh, there seemed to be many obstacles against that. To begin with, I hadn't been practicing. (laughs) And then I live in Brooklyn and, you know, even though it was quiet, I, I didn't think it was that quiet, but he said, there's a way around everything. And and we figured it out. We figured out dates uh, to do it and um, had it all set. And for like two weeks leading up to the recording, I actually started practicing again to prepare for it because I would not played this repertoire in about a year. And then all of the uh, protests started. And so suddenly there was the curfew and the helicopters. And our plan had been to record in the middle of the night in my room because I'm on the, the side of the street but he couldn't come because he lives up in Westchester, so he couldn't drive. And I mean, this is the least of the, it, it seems ridiculous to even talk about this because there are much bigger things going on in the world than my little recording, but we had to wait. And so that was interesting because I had kind of built myself up after this sort of torpor. And then I had to just stop again and I didn't know when we were going to be able to do it. And so it, it got delayed. And um, finally, everything sort of settled down again, and we we did it. And even leading up to that, I had all sorts of worries. I remember like the week before he was going to come, I, I, I wanted to cancel it. And I said, you know, I've been thinking my piano room is the place where I'm the most self-critical. Like, this is where I work. How am I going to record in this space? Like, when I record, I have to let go and just play and not be self-critical, not be analytical. It's about being 
in the moment giving something out and how am I going to do that in my room? And he just kept on reassuring me that it was all going to work out. And then it really did. As you said earlier, your your husband, your son, and I believe you have a dog, were all around. Were they allowed to sit in on those sessions or did they get the boot? Well, we have a house, but we live on two floors. So I'm on the, the piano's on the second floor and our bedrooms are on the second floor. And then the lower floor is the kitchen and our living space. So Adam was downstairs um, in the living space with my husband and the dog and the piano technician too. They were all down there. And then my son was in his room and everybody was supposed to be very quiet. And even we have tenants upstairs and I asked them, they have a little kid too. So that was a bit of a worry because she's about four and I was gonna be playing at midnight. And, um, and they, they tucked her away. They said, don't worry. And then I asked, could they please not flush the toilet? And they didn't flush <laughs> the toilet. <laughs> and everybody you got some, you was got some extremely, wonderful neighbors. Yeah, no, they were all very well behaved. The only person who really didn't behave well was my son. And the very first take, which he didn't realize was a for real take, um, he was eating dinner in his room. And while I was playing, I could hear his fork hitting his plate. And it turned out that that take was the best take. And so you do have, there is a moment where you hear Adrian eating. <laughs> Immortalized for all time. Yes, but Daisy the dog, she never barked. It was amazing. Let's, let's talk about the album itself. So it's comprised of three etudes by Philip Glass, but the meat of it is Schubert's piano sonata in B-flat, his final piano sonata, and I think indisputably one of his greatest works, one of the greatest works for the solo piano. Glass and Schubert were born 140 years apart to the day. Both were born on January 31st. So they are, uh, I guess, linked on the astral plane. There's some big Aquarius energy there. What musical connections have you found between them? I think there are many musical connections. I think I first thought of it in a car ride that I had um, several years ago. I was listening to Glass's Metamorphosis, and suddenly I thought, wait, this is Schubert. And then I thought, this is really interesting. Like, I wonder how, how many of his piano pieces actually sound like Schubert. And so I decided to listen to all of them. And I found multiple pieces that seemed very connected. connected I would say in, that in, what sense? in many in many senses. So first of all, their use of repetition as a way of developing an idea. Uh, so they often will repeat something but change just one small element in what they're repeating. So if they're using um, a chord progression that is that is almost like an ostinato that's that's going over and over again then they'll change one note within the chord and it's a very subtle way of making a phrase evolve and then i would say also they both uh wrote a lot for the voice so that creeps into their instrumental writing too that's very it's very lyrical it's very vocal and I think also the, the type of emotion in, in both of their music is both extremely sensitive and, and heartfelt. 
and also a little bit icy, a little bit removed. And um, it, it's, it's really fascinating. So I created a recital program a few years ago where I go back and forth between their works without any pause. And in fact, even in the program, didn't specify which composer was writing which piece. And it was very interesting how people responded to it because, um, you know, very conservative listeners who weren't, were not used to listening to glass or thought had a preconceived notion about his music felt that they were very surprised that the music related so much to Schubert and then sometimes they didn't even know which one was Schubert and which one was Glass. And then I actually went and played the whole program for Philip Glass and he was really surprised. And then he said, this makes total sense because um, he grew up listening to Schubert a lot because Schubert was his father's favorite composer. Was that the first time you'd met him when you did that? Um, no, I met Philip before that, and he actually invited me over for breakfast. <laughs> um, and that was really funny and surreal. And in that, in that meeting, we arranged that he would write something for me. And then we developed that into him writing a piano concerto for me. And then after that, I went and played this program for him because I wanted him to hear it. And he hadn't yet started composing the concerto when he heard me play this program of Schubert and Glass for him. And I think that it really influenced his writing of the concerto, having heard me play Schubert. Uh, it has that quality in the music. That's fascinating. Do you get real-time feedback from him? Does he coach you on your interpretations, or does he let you be? Oh, no. He never—he seems— he's the least controlling person about interpretation. It's really quite interesting. It's almost like he doesn't even remember what he was thinking when he wrote it. Like he was in some kind of trance and the music, in a way the music isn't even owned by him anymore. I find that really, really interesting. And I, I have to say, it's, I think it's partially because he is a performer too, and he's always been a performer. And so he understands the creative role that performance brings to music, that music comes to life in many different ways when it's played and by whom it's played. Um, and he knows that things can go in different directions. The only thing that he feels very firmly about is the actual architecture of his piece. Architecture is really, really important to him. So repeats are not just repeats. I mean, I think repeats are a repeat sign is a way of saving paper and and maybe effort of having to write it all out again, but that's the only thing it's saving. It's it's a real um, part of the music. I wouldn't even think of the repeat as being the repeat is never the same. The repeat is always a different thing, even if the notes are the same. The feeling is different, and so I remember when I I went back again and played the Schubert B flat sonata for him. And I remember he was really, really happy and excited that I took the first movement repeat, which is a very, very big repeat, because he felt it was really essential. And I think it's essential, too. Well, let's talk about the Schubert. What, in your opinion, makes this piece so special, enigmatic, difficult, cathartic? I think that it's one of those pieces of music that is so ambitious, it's so huge, 
it's both about this huge vista that starts from the first note of the piece and goes to the very last note of the last movement. I mean, all of those movements are connected to each other inextricably. But at the same time, it's one of those pieces of music where every single moment has to be savored. The details, the micro and the macro are really equally important. And, and I don't know if every piece of music is like that. Some, so, you know, most music has moments where you're like, I like that part and I like this part. Um, but this piece, every moment is leading to another moment. And I, I think that maybe that's something that we all kind of hear and understand, even if we're not aware of it while we're listening to the music. Schubert wrote the sonata in the year of his death. He first performed it just two months before he died. I've always found a sense of inevitability to it, uh, that you know his health was deteriorating very quickly. He had syphilis. It was a pretty grisly ending by all accounts. Has it taken on a new meaning for you this year when unfortunately we've experienced so much collective tragedy? I think the music reflects some kind of deep sorrow and deep hope at the same time, especially in that first movement, which is in the key of B-flat, but is, is also very, very wistful, very much a remembrance. It, it's, the whole piece is full of memory. So yes, I think it was completely appropriate for now. That's why I chose to record this program, because I couldn't imagine playing any other music, really. It just of all the music that I could do uh, at this time, this seemed the most relevant. A character of quiet. Where did that title come from? That comes from a very beautiful and uh, ambitious poem by William Wordsworth called The Prelude which is an autobiographical poem. I believe it may have been the first autobiographical poem. This particular part of it is about getting away from society, like tuning down the noise of society and what happens when, when those voices become quieted and, and you are alone with your thoughts. Uh, and I, that was how I was feeling. And when I, when I was reading it and that, that line, a character of quiet just stood out to me as being the perfect title for the album. In so many ways, except for that one, uh, fork. Yes. <laughs> Simona, thank you so much for your time this morning and congratulations on the album. It's beautiful. Thank you. It's so great to talk with you. That was my guest, pianist Simona Dinnerstein. Her new album, A Character of Quiet, is available now from Orange Mountain Music. This interview was produced by Max Fine with technical production from George Wellington. I'm Zev Kane. Thanks for listening.